Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Mark Collard, founder of Playmio and an experiential trainer who helps people connect through the use of fun group games and activities. He's the top-selling author of five books, including the latest No Props, No Problem, and the founder of the largest online database of group games and activities in the world. Welcome to the show, Mark. Douglas, thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So I want to hear a little bit about how you got your start. How does somebody get into this idea of fun group games and activities as a profession? It's a great question, and it's one that I've had to ponder myself. In fact, I spent a bit of time writing about that very question, and I think if you dive deep enough, you go back all the way to kindergarten, and it was like the kid who sat next to you. Uh, But I think in a more practical sense, it was uh, the decision of my parents to send me to Scouts, Uh, It was my inclination to be part of a youth group as part of my church. All of those spaces were places where I was engaged in group games and activities. And I don't know many people who don't actually enjoy them. And so I did. And not that I knew that then, but I made a career of using interactive group games and activities, probably based on the fact that there was one particular youth leadership camp I went on that extended over four days that like night and day, chalk and cheese just transformed me. And again, didn't know this at the time, but I look back and understand the facilitation of those group games is what caused that transformation. So for me, it, it harks back to that. But you know, now with over 30 years experience in the field and having run many summer camps around the world, you know, all of those are programmed activities. Uh, all of those uh, give me my body of work today. So. Let's go back to that moment. I'm really curious. I want to hear more Mm. about this. What do you think were some of the key elements that kind of unlocked that experience for you? Yeah. Again, I didn't see it at the time, Douglas. It was, I was just swept up in it as a participant, but with a lens that I have now looking at it, I understand it was the ability to form, first of all, a temporary community. Those connections I had with about 40 other people I'd never met in my life, some of whom are my longest friends in my life. You know, that I have friends from that program I still see on a regular basis today. So I think the ability for those leaders of that experience to, to build community, which was all about building connections. And I suppose for me, it was about then realizing who I was. as they had created such a safe place for me to be, I was able to then find others who could value me, acknowledge me and accept me. Uh, And perhaps in my life, that had never happened before. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating you say temporary communities because it seems like the community wasn't so temporary. It actually had long-lasting implications. And the thing that strikes me is that it was an emergent community. It, it kind of just like sprung forth because of the the situation that was kind of put there. And I think, I mean, it's just dawning on me in this moment listening to you that like, wow, that's kind of, that's a really interesting concept that like we create these conditions and these little mini impromptu communities emerge. That's right. And they are temporary 
from an intentional perspective. I'm sure the leaders only intentionally wanted to create community for the, for the four days they were running it. However, they also fully understand that the skills, the life skills, we didn't use these terms back then, but the social emotional learning skills we, we, were, we were able to experience back then were gonna last a lifetime. And they are no doubt in my mind, the foundation of a lot of my experiences of who I am and how I occur to other people today. And it was chalk and cheese. Like I remember going back to my university uh, to, to mix with my friends who knew me the week before this camp. And I came back and overwhelmingly said, what happened to you? <laughs> yeah, look, you look different. I was dressing differently and you sound differently. And it was like, oh, something must have really happened. So yeah, right. It wasn't just in those four days. It, there, there is this sense that there, it's going to continue as well. Yeah, and maybe I'll come back to that temporary notion again because something you said sparked something new for me, which is maybe it's the intention of the facilitators, this kind of pure intention that they're creating this temporary environment without any bigger intentions, but what can grow from that is kind of a bit unknown and we'll allow that to flourish, but we don't impress these expectations on folks to make them feel like they're responsible to do something or whatnot. Oh, oh absolutely. And I speak a lot about asking the question before you stand before any group, what is possible? What is possible here? And I know the framework that I bring to my work and my training and education it, it scaffolds the greatest level of possibility. So it's possible that the leaders in that particular youth leadership camp had the same expectations, is that we're gonna view this temporarily, but we're gonna ask the question, what is possible here? And so they just jammed and created this amazing framework that helped people feel safe and so that they could step outside their comfort zones and discover who they were and what was, what was possible for them. And of course, you know, lofty, lofty uh, levels were attained. You mentioned people stepping outside of their comfort zones. And so often when we're working with clients and we go anywhere near kind of playful kinds of things like improv or games, they always say, well, I'm not sure that, you know, the executives are going to do this or my analytical folks, I don't, I don't think, I don't know if they're, they're just going to roll their eyes or whatever. And I think there's so much magic in that discomfort that they are picking up on. They're anticipating it, but they're afraid to walk into it. I'm nodding my head as you speak. <laughs> I don't think there's been a program I've worked on where there hasn't been some element of that in the beginning. And while it's not a term I typically uh, embrace, but it's about breaking that ice, the ice mm. of, of that exterior Sometimes it's a soft exterior. Sometimes it's quite hard that you can, that you do need to break through to get to who people really are. Um, if you've got a breath and you and you're a warm body, then I know that fun is going to be the magic, my most potent weapon to be able to invite you to participate. And I can't think of a program, no matter who the group are, whether they're a group of top executives from you know Fortune 500 companies or a group of school kids or kids at risk, whatever. If, if you can appreciate that they are human, if you can appreciate that they're all going to uh, enjoy play, but some of them get to it longer than others, like it just takes some time for some groups uh, more than others, that they can respond. If given the opportunity, given the correct environment, uh, and I often think of my own primary responsibility as a facilitator is about creating the, the most appropriate environment 
so that my group can make whatever choices is required for them, you know, to discover whatever's possible. Mm. Yeah, that environment and space matters so much. And, you know, it's it's something that uh, I think some people somewhat lose sight of in the virtual space because they, you know, in the in the physical space, they think, oh, we need to get a venue. How are the tables arranged? And in the virtual space, it, it almost seems like there's like, oh, well, this is how Zoom works. I guess this is what we got. And it's like, ooh, yep. that's a real missed opportunity. Oh, absolutely. And that that we also forget that we're still working with humans. They may be pixelated versions on our screen and we get caught by this, you know, this camera that we get sucked into. But I would argue that the ability to connect, the need to connect, connect is as important I would even argue more important when you can't be in the same physical space as each other. And so it's not just a matter of wheeling in your whiteboard or flip chart and presenting like you normally do, because as a facilitator for a start, you cannot gauge the room in the same way when all you've got is a gallery view of pixelated images of heads. You can't see the body behaviors as easily. Uh, so facilitation is very different. I, I've often lately started to use an assistant or a scribe or someone else in the room. You know, some people will use producers or technical facilitators, but having someone else there that's helping check the signals, really helpful because you're you're right, it's really hard to pick up on all the nuance. It's very different. And, and so again, in the same way when people actually turn up, my intentionality to invite them to connect early is is equally as important as when people uh, log into their Zoom room. Uh, so I spend, for example, the first five or 10 minutes in what I refer to as the unofficial start, which is mm. really just, it's not an activity, it's just a principle of engaging people productively in something that they have a choice in. And it could be, you know, coloring mindfully online, you know, uh, using the annotate tool or solving a few puzzles or responding to a question that I've posed. Today, there was four of us in a call from around the world, and I played a game where I threw a dice, and the dice number reflected a question on the screen. And if that person who was next chose to, they would answer that question. It was completely random. They didn't know how the dice would roll. That was my unofficial start. Uh, so the, the key there, Douglas, is the intentionality. I was intentionally inviting connections while at the same time waiting for people to arrive. And it, you know, the hour just flew as a result because people felt more connected to people who they've never met before, never been in the same room before, but felt some form of connection to each other. You know, it's funny. I just finished up some training with a large enterprise and we were doing some coaching after. And they were asking me, you know, I they're, they're, they're making a point that, you know, we really loved the connection pieces. Whenever we came back from break, we did something to to like create connection and that was really impressive. I want to use that more, but I just, how, how can I do that in a 30 minute meeting? And I asked, how often do your 30 minute meetings start on time? Mm -hmm. And then she was like, well, not very often. And then I said, well, why do you not start on time? And she said, well, I'm waiting for people to arrive. And I was like, would you be willing to start a warm up on time? <laughs> and she <laughs> was just like, oh, okay, I get it. So, yeah, it's exactly the thing you're saying, right? We're not going to be afraid to start a warm up the minute the clock ticks and then we can get it going. And, oh, yeah. uh, absolutely. And with the time I spent honing that skill, particularly in university, I was a lecturer there for seven years. I lectured in two subjects. So, over the course of 14 semesters, Every class started with an unofficial start. 
And typically, as kids who have just left high school, moved into college or university, you know, they would just dribble in because that's what happened with every other class. Why would you turn up on time and you know the instructor's gonna wait five or 10 minutes? I would start on time, but indeed early. And within about four or five weeks of the 14 week semester, I never had another late student. And I never had to say to them, hey dude, you need to be here on time. Because here's what happened, and I didn't use this terminology back in the 90s, but FOMO, the fear of missing out. There was something that happened, that transpired, that you know when you entered the space, that, oh, what's going on? But you could feel something. And that also happens online. You know, as people arrive online, they, 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 get, they get that there's an energy about what's happening. And you do that enough, you don't turn up late. You know, there's yep. obviously reasons why some people need to be late, but often it's just laziness. Yeah, and I would say that's a much safer thing to do than just to start content early. Yeah. Because if you start content early, you'll get a lot of backlash and people feeling like you're attacking them. Yep, and, and it's a missed opportunity, Douglas, because you have an opportunity to connect. Now, it's great if that connection can also relate directly to your content as well. That's like a, a double whammy. Um, but it shouldn't be necessary, but it's great if it can. And so you've got that ability to, well, the opportunity to connect is missed. It's a golden opportunity. Otherwise it's, it's thrown away. And I want to point out, it comes back to one of your maxims, which is connect before content. Mm. And, and while I use it a lot, it's something I've learned from somebody else, uh, Chad Littlefield from a group called we, uh, and I don't know where he got it from, but, uh, for me, that just resonated. It, it, it just made a lot of sense, but it put a title, a, a mantra to something that I'd already been doing to connect before content. And I often say to people that I'm not being rude. I actually don't care what your content is, but whatever it is, do something, spend some time and energy. And with unashamedly, it always takes a little bit of time and a little bit of energy, do something to help your group connect. And I, I speak a lot with educators and school administrators, and their first pushback to that is, oh, if you had any idea just how crammed our curriculum is, you know, how, how do we find the extra time for this? And, and without exception, those that embrace this concept discover that over time, the group actually, because of their connections, get through a lot more content a lot more quickly. And so they end up actually uh, getting through as much of the content as they planned, indeed even more, because some of the group issues, the group management issues, uh, just don't bear their heads as often or as large when you haven't spent the time, uh, you know, spending time to invite those groups to connect with one another. This also gets into like brain chemistry and learning science type stuff as well, because the connection is going to create environments for better learning. And so you probably don't have to repeat yourself as much as a lecturer when you're lecturing and yep. that connection to the people is going to make them more connected to the content. Yep. I've never met a camp leader, a teacher, corporate trainer, anyone who's responsible for the welfare of a group who said, oh, Mark, could you teach me how to pull back the engagement for my group? They're just way too <laughs> engaged. You know, it's always, Mark, if I could just engage my group, it would be half the problem. And so those connections is part of the answer. It's not the, you know, it's not the only answer, obviously, but to invite people to connect, to help them feel more comfortable, invites them to participate, to put their hand up where they ordinarily wouldn't, because the question might be a bit challenging for the group to hear, or mm -hmm. to give something a go that at first glance, they might feel they could look a bit foolish if they don't get it right. That's the environments that we're talking about that invite, that happens as a result of, 
intentionally building those connections early on. And I want to come back to a point you made earlier and just spend a little time on it to make sure the listeners really kind of understand what you were getting at. And it was your point around tying the the connection to the content. If you even kind of poked a little fun at the term icebreaker, because I think a lot of times it's used maybe as a corpus of work that people just throw around without having connection to the content. And one of the things I usually like to tell people is if we do something and we can't ask the group why we just did that and have it be a really interesting conversation, then maybe we should be asking ourselves, why did we just do it? And so when we're picking these activities and games, it's really great when we can be really intentional about it and thinking about what they get out of it and how that transitions into the work we're going to follow with. Yes. Uh, I will, I'm a big proponent of and a big advocate for taking fun more seriously. But when that fun, it's packaged because we want to invite people to participate, it's like a magnet. When that fun also engages them in something related to the content, it, it's a, an extra prize, it's a bonus. Uh, it's something we should aim for. It may not always be possible, but in my experience, and perhaps it's come from experience, Douglas, most activities I can find a way to wend a message to segue from that thing that appeared to be trivial, just fun, frivolous, wasteful, to, ah, oh, now I can see why we did that. I love mm-hmm. that when that happens. I love it when a kid says to me, oh, you you, you lied to us today. It's like, what do you mean? So, well, you said we we're going to have fun. I said, yeah, did you have fun? Yeah, we had fun, but I also learned something. So it's like, yes, that's awesome. I've disguised the fun, so disguised the learning, sorry, inside this package called fun because it's the attractive part. I love that. And so we've been talking a lot about connection and I want to bring it into the context of the space we find ourselves these days, which is remote. And there's a lot to unpack here. So I'm excited to to talk about a few of these things with you. But first, let's just talk a little bit about the challenge of creating connection in a virtual space. And it is a challenge, Douglas, there's no doubt. Uh, When March, April happened in 2020, and a tsunami of inquiries came into my inbox saying, help, you know, we all worked under the the presumption that we had to turn up. That was the presumptive setting. Everyone would just turn up and that was no longer possible. What do we do? And they came to me as the expert and I just put my hands up and said, I'm an explorer. I am not the expert because I've not done this either. And so it was challenging. And I think in the beginning, the challenge, Douglas, was wrangling the technology because we weren't used to that. We weren't used to setting the camera and the mic and the settings and the backgrounds and whatever we had to do to create slides if we normally did something else. But that was that just took a little bit of time to to sort of wrangle the technology. I think the greatest challenge was bringing our humanity to that pixelated version of ourselves on the screen Mm -hmm. and that, of course, of everyone else on our screen. And that, for me, is what separated uh, the good to the excellent. You know, you might have been a great teacher or even a good teacher or corporate trainer, but what made you excellent online was that you were able to manage the humanity of this moment. Even though we're not in the same space, I was able to respect and when in doubt, accepted that everyone was human Um, and and, that the intentionality was still present. I got so caught up in the technology in the beginning, I forgot to bring myself and my humanity and and to invite everyone else's humanity to a space. So 
you know, inviting choice. You know, so it wasn't just like picking a, uh, a, a, an image on my screen. So, okay, Charlie, uh, what do you think about that? Well, Charlie was now on the spot. <laughs> you know, you probably shouldn't do that in any group in any case, in most cases, but there was other ways in which I could respect choice and respect the humanness of that moment. Uh, so for me, I've continued to refine those skills of bringing my humanity to the screen. Absolutely. So let's let's get a little bit tactical. And when we mm. think about like, what are some of the moves or plays that can help make connection? I, I feel like breakout rooms are a powerful way to kind of get a little connection happening. Mm -hmm. Certainly agree. Calling on people is a, <laughs> can be a, a, abrupt and, and challenging. Yep. You know, yep. something, something I've taken a fancy to, you know, I, I miss the days of being able to just go around the circle, you know, like get everyone <laughs> a circle and go around the circle. Uh -huh. People have certainly done the, you know, after you go call, like maybe pick the next person and you just yep. go around like that. Yep. I've even shared my, my gallery view. I know Zoom now lets you like set a fixed view, but people get lost and eh, you can, and depending on their version of Zoom, that can be problematic, but I'll share my screen so that people can see what order they're in. So they know what order to go in. So you can kind of do the go around the circle thing. Yes. But I was just curious if you had any moves or plays that you use to kind of help like boost the connection a bit. There, I've used a similar technique to, I think what you just described, Douglas, uh, I call it curiosity ping pong. Uh, again, something I've picked up from elsewhere where I will start by asking a question. For example, I did this just a few days ago. What is the strangest thing you believed as a kid? And I invite people to write it into the chat room. Don't hit enter, just put it into the chat room and then give them a minute to do that. And then on go, everyone hits the enter key and then it's like my inbox first thing in the morning, just fills with responses. Give them a moment to reflect on all of that. And then I'll either ask for a volunteer or I will start and say, hey, I'm really curious about your response about this, Shaquana. Can you tell me more about that? And if Shaquana wants to, she'll come off mute, share what the story was about her, you know, her response to the question, and then it's her turn, a bit like the back and forth of ping pong, it's her turn to pick somebody else. So it's a bit like I think what you shared. Uh, there's that. Um, you could also play a game where maybe we identify based on the number of letters in our name or the alphabetical order of our names, or it could be some other random number. So I might say, okay, uh, in the chat room, just put any two digits together from zero to 99, just randomly put a number down. They don't, they don't know what's coming, of course. So they put down their number. Okay, whoever is closest to zero, I invite you to go first. And whoever's after that, you're second, and it'll finish with whoever's closest to 99. Yeah. And what they love is that it was fun, just making up a number and then, oh, okay. And then it engages them because they need to see, check to see where they're at. You could also change their names. If you happen to be using Zoom, of course, you could change their name to just putting the two numbers in. So then everyone can see all the numbers on their screen at the same time. There, there's, a, there's a couple of quick ones. Nice, nice. Yeah, that reminds me of a fun warm up that you can do. It comes from like improv games of counting together. Oh. And so you try to get to 10 without stepping on anybody and you got to keep <laughs> starting over. Yep. Eventually, if you got a clever group, someone will, will, will present a strategy, you know, that we might use to get through this. And then I, I think people jumping in and, and 
offering support and strategies is where it, that is a form of connection too, because mm-hmm. they're starting to problem solve mm-hmm. without you even telling them the problem solve. Yep. And that's a great activity. I know it is count off. I've been using for years in person, but it's even better online because it's harder. <laughs> well, it's, it's harder in some respects, but it's better because when it was live in person, sometimes I couldn't quite tell if two numbers came out at the same time oh, or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but online, I just meant the latency, the latency yes. in the in, in internet makes people mess up more, and it's funny because <laughs> someone thinks they're, you know, they're, they're and you hear it like two seconds later or something. It's pretty good. Uh, it, it, typically, less so with the chat room, but it's it's very obvious to everyone that we just had three fives in a, in a row. Great, we're back to zero again, and it's engaging. You know, it's it's one of those things that you might just use as a thirty second energizer to. Mindfully, just move away from your content before you refresh and move on to something new. Just having a yeah reset. It's a great reason to do these things. It's like uh-huh. a brain break. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Or brain boost. So I had someone yeah. tell me the other day. It's like really, yeah, like that sounds so damaging. Why are you breaking brains? It's like <laughs> oh, that's not what I meant. So that I have to say brain boost now. <laughs> no doubt, that's so good. Brain boost. I love it. Well, I also want to talk a little bit about current events there in Australia and here we are in practically May and you've been pretty open since October Mm. and something I found really interesting when I asked you about hybrid is that you really hadn't been seeing much of it it's either in person or remote which has kind of been a hypothesis of mine that like people are going to do one or the other and if anyone's remote it kind of has to be all remote even if a good chunk of those people might be in the same building Mm. and and I think it it clearly depends on regions and in some cases i come from melbourne australia australia has done an outstanding job at controlling the spread of the virus you know i think we've been almost six months practically without any community transition uh, transmission so that's been good so kids have been back in school since october no issue whatsoever but when we were at remote learning it was one or the other you were either remote learning or everyone was in the classroom so in australia didn't see hybrid where you've got a bit of both. I do know it is in some places around the world. And that is a tough gig. It's hard enough to, to, to teach just to remote or just to, to, to the folks who would stand before you in the classroom or the training room. But to do both at the same time takes a masterful uh, set of skills. It's multitasking. And as we mm. know, people can't multitask. Mm. And so if you're looking at the Zoom, you're not looking at the room. Yep. And if you're looking at the room, the people in the Zoom are getting a deficient experience. If you're looking in the Zoom, the people in the room are getting a deficient experience. And always, if people in the room are going to be tempted to have conversations, the people that are connected to Zoom aren't going to hear those conversations. Definitely not if there's one omnidirectional mic in the room, right? So <laughs> No. Yeah, we've all been part of meetings where, you know, I was part of school council earlier this week. One of our, actually the vice chair, was Zoomed in. Everyone else is in the same room. It was hard. It was so difficult mm. to keep involving them. They often don't get heard because they've been put on mute or whatever. Uh, it's just very difficult. And I think it takes a great master to be able to manage that well so everyone feels acknowledged and valued. Yeah, and I think that it's those principles we have to keep coming back to if we're going to explore those scenarios. And mm. I, I think that's, that's the interesting part. We're going to be entering in a, a time of experimentation where we're going to be exploring how we show up for those types of things and what the best moves and tactics are. But I think to your point, we have to, have to come back to those principles and those underpinning values. 
Yep, and it, and it could be just as simple as uh, acknowledging that it is clearly a different setting when you've got that hybridness, um, but making sure that that person continues to be heard and valued uh, because it's mm. easier to see everyone in the room, but it's harder for them to do that or to hear them. And so constantly checking in with them is like, hey, which is true for any person. You know, you've got the folks who don't speak up as much as others. It's true for, for the facilitator of that group to make sure that those folks have a chance to check in as well um, or to break into smaller groups. Well, make sure you don't forget the person who's on Zoom. Have that, <laughs> that screen turned around to the two or three people who are now in a breakout room, <laughs> even though two or three of them are in the same space. Uh, the intentionality to remember about that stuff. So I want to ask you another question here, which is for someone who's already had to go back to in-person and you're kind of, you know, you're doing some remote stuff, you're doing some in-person stuff. How did this moment of being 100% remote influence how you show up in person now? That's a great question, Douglas. Uh, the first thoughts that come to mind is this technique that I use to ask or somehow inquire, check in with my group, are they ready to engage? Are they ready to play? Are they ready to learn? It depends on the context. I don't know that I really did that very, very well back in the days when everything was presumptively you turn up. But I, I acknowledge the humanness of folks mm -hmm. that they, particularly because my community is worldwide, that some are getting up in the early morning, some are up late at night, some are at the end or the middle of their working days, checking in with them and creating something on the screen that said, hey, just annotate this scale. And you know, I did a variety of them. Let's say we use the emoji. So you've got depressed at one end and sad at the other end, highly vigorous and enthusiastic and everything in between. You know, annotate this scale as to where you're at right now. And it gave me a very quick sense of where my group was at. And, and, and I wasn't solving any problems, but sometimes just the simple acknowledgement of the fact that people are tired or they're not feeling well, or they're here under duress, can be enough to bridge the engagement necessary to move them forward in the next hour. And now, of course, I'm doing that as people turn up. You know, here's an example. I worked with a, a group of kids just the other day where as they enter the gym, they have to stand on this paper mat and there were three emoji faces. One was sad, one was neutral, the other one was happy. And as they came in, there was a little sign that says, please step on, you know, to basically engage with that emoji that you're feeling right now. Without ever having to say anything to the group, as they were coming in, dribbling in, I could tell from the footmarks where my group was at. And I was checking in with them. And there's a whole variety of other ways of doing it, but that was just one that I recently used that was so simple. Um, people thought it was fun. <laughs> uh, and it, it's something now that has really influenced what I do in person. You know, it's, it's interesting. It reminds me of what we refer to as assessment points because the game became an assessment point for you. You were able to glean info about how they were showing up and you know that can be used not only at the beginning but throughout an event where if we want to kind of gauge how people are doing mm -hmm. we can kind of throw those things in yep and and any number of unofficial starts as we hark back to what we talked about earlier douglas also provides me with evidence about where my group is at so if i've provided a selection of activities as people are gathering and most people are choosing to do something other than what i've given 
Uh, that gives me an indication of where the group is at, how connected they are, how well do they look after each other? Are they up to play? Are they willing to engage? Mm. Are they looking for excuses <laughs> uh, for something else to do? So even that provides me with maybe an unofficial way of checking in with the group as well. Yeah, I want to come back to something you've mentioned a couple of times, and you just brought it up again, this notion, are they willing to play? Are they ready to play? Mm. What would you recommend to a facilitator if you detect or suspect that they're not quite ready? I think most groups are not ready. Because uh, the, the thing about play, if we look at its pure definition, is it's the, it's the absence of pretense. It's who you are. And most of us run around for lots of good reasons with some at least a thin veil of a mask. So most groups have something that needs to be uh, pulled down before they're ready to jump in and just simply play, you know, to, to be engaged in something for no apparent reason other than the sheer joy that comes from participating. No win-lose, they're not particularly conscious of what's going on around them. They are the essence of play or flow, if you want to get really scientific. And so I think all groups come with that. Some of them just have a lot more ice to chip through than others. If you're mm -hmm. truly wanting to help that group connect and therefore amplify the results of whatever you're trying to get done, then do something. You know, a little bit of time and energy to chip away at that uh, can be very useful. And, and you need to meet them where they're at. You know, I can think of many corporate groups that stand there with their, their arms crossed on their chest and like, this is just childish, blah, blah, blah. And then it becomes a personal mission for me, Douglas, to find something so contagiously fun, it becomes difficult for them to stand away from. And then once they're in it, I know I've got them. <laughs> because they, they, right. they realize this is a safe place. And so having a big bag of tricks up my sleeve is definitely one of my, my advantages. But I appreciate that for many people, they don't have much, which is partly why I created this huge database to better say, hey, this is what's working for me, give it a go type stuff. So having that large repertoire is useful so that you're picking the right activity at the right time to chip away at whatever, whatever that resistance might be. In our facilitation lab just last week, one of the facilitators said, you know, it's one thing to invite someone to the dance, but it's a completely other thing to invite them to dance. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about this executive, you know, with his arms crossed, <laughs> you know, not willing to, not willing to engage. I just had this mental image of you in your bag of tricks. And at first his toe starts tapping yep. to the yep. music and then his leg starts moving. And next thing you know, he's dancing, yeah. you know, yeah. And it's so easy for us as facilitators to point the blame at that person. Oh, oh, I've seen you before. You never do anything and blah, 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 blah. I like to flip it and go, no, no, it's my responsibility to create an environment in which you make appropriate choices consistent with the goals of the program. So if I can understand that's my responsibility and look, every one of us can, can say, yep, there's some people out there. They're not even their mother's love. I get that. But really most people, most humans are willing to meet at least halfway if you can give them a good reason to engage. And so I like to flip that responsibility. It's like, what is it that I'm doing that's creating this for them right now? And, and you can't control the stories in their head, but you can control the environment as much as possible that might help them make a, a different decision. 
And, you know, let's just be honest, there are going to be plenty of situations where it might be our fault as a facilitator is that maybe we didn't do a great job oh. of setting it up. So oh. they don't understand, they're not connecting to the, the why or the purpose, yep. or they're unclear on it, or they, they feel like they're going to have to make a sacrifice and we haven't laid that out mm-hmm. properly. And, and I think it's a really great question for every one of my groups to ask is, why are we doing this? What I hope, what I plan, what I intend is that that question is answered in the fun that is, in, is wanting to draw them in. Uh, my mentor, Carl Ronke, who sadly uh, passed away last year, he was the person I learned a lot of this stuff and he coined a term called functional understanding, not necessary, F-U-N-N. And he talked about that. That was one of his core values was F-U-N-N because it's not necessary to understand what's going on to have a great time. And so that contagiously fun stuff is what loosens those arms on people's chests to lean in and give something a go because they, they sense that there's nothing to embarrass or threaten them. It looks safe and looks like just a bit of fun. And, and that's a challenge to, 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 to find that. But there are lots of options that you can work with. Wow. What a great concept. Mm. I think that'll be a great spot to end on as well. So I want to shift it over to you, Mark, to see if you have a final thought for our listeners. Well, I mentioned, Douglas, in our conversation, having a bag of tricks. You know, that's something I learned from Carl. He had a massive, thousands of activities. Could just, it just seemed to me he could pull out of his back pocket and use it at the right time with a particular group. And so over the last 30 years, I've created this massive online database because while I have many books, that was one way of sharing word for beyond those people who could turn up at a training, but doing it online just leveraged the digital world. And so uh, playmeo.com, and I'm sure you'll provide links here, is a great place to go. There's tons of free resources there, lots of free group games, many of which you can use virtually as much as in person. And they're all about uh, providing opportunities for your group to interact and build those connections uh, so that it helps amplify your results. So if you go to playmeo.com forward slash free, typical spelling, uh, you can find tons of things that you can download, everything from a free app uh, to free activities online, eBooks, and so forth. Well, Mark, I just want to reiterate how much of a pleasure it's been chatting with you today and encourage everyone to go check out playmeo.com for lots of free tools. It's on my list that I published of, of awesome resources Thank for you. methods and tools. So definitely endorse that. Go check it out. And Mark, it's been a pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Douglas. It's been my pleasure as well. Hope everyone of your listeners has enjoyed this too. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com